You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. <laughs> and today, we're talking about marriage and sex on the show. Two of my favorite topics to talk about. And to do this, we're, we're actually having a seminary president on here who I believe has said that Song of Songs is his favorite book of the Bible. <laughs> He's a Danny Aiken, he, Dr. Danny Aiken is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's married to Charlotte Aiken, been married since May 27, 1978. They have four sons who are currently serving in ministry, three daughters-in-law, and 12 grandchildren. He's also a professor of preaching and theology. He and his wife Charlotte have traveled to Sudan, Turkey, Middle East, Kenya, Asia, Central Asia, Thailand, India, and Paraguay serving students and missionaries and helping share the gospel. Dr. Aiken, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, Nick, thank you and very honored to be on the uh, podcast with you today, my friend. Mm -hmm. Now, if my uh, audience doesn't know much about you and who you are, can you tell us a bit about uh, how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, uh, I became a Christian at the age of 10, and then the Lord called me into the ministry uh, at the age of 20, uh, I was on a mission trip on an Indian reservation in Arizona, and since very clearly God's call to ministry, uh, went back to see my pastor and uh, asked him what should I do, and he suggested I go to a Bible college in the Dallas area. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, Nick, mm. and um, so uh, he said there's a college in Dallas that he thought very highly of. I trusted my pastor, so I went to uh, Dallas to go to Crystal College. Mm. Then Southwestern Seminary, uh -huh. then University of Texas at Arlington. Mm. I uh, always thought that I would be a pastor, and I was serving uh, on a pastoral staff for nine years when uh, the Lord opened the door for me to begin teaching at Crystal College, and uh, since that that's what God was directing. So I taught uh, at that college in Dallas for five years, then came to Southeastern in 1992 as the dean of students, was here for four years. Then the Lord led us to Louisville, Kentucky, where I served at Southern Seminary for eight years. And then uh, a little over 15 years ago, the Lord brought us back to Southeastern, where we have been since the year 2004. And uh, it's been absolutely wonderful. God's been so kind and gracious, and we're, we're loving uh, our uh, ministry service uh, here in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Yeah, I remember when I went to Bible College, I was eventually thinking I'd probably be a pastor of sorts. Now I can give a sermon every now and then. I'd be a terrible pastor, really. But I found out about apologetics while I was there, and my path has been set ever since doing apologetics. Well, good, good. Now, in your book, you say that, and this is something I think is, uh, you could 
use as a strong point that you say uh, Song of Songs is your favorite book of a Bible, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Some people say, "Wow, Doctor Aiken, you are a seminary president. You're supposed to be like a man of God, a holy pastor, and such." A why well, pick Song of Songs for your favorite book? It's not rather worldly and fleshy and such. Well, it uh, is uh, fleshly, but I would not call it worldly because mm-hmm. I think it gives uh, God's uh, divinely inspired picture of what marriage should be like and what intimacy should be like mm-hmm. between a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. I also think uh, that there are themes in the Song of Songs that points us to uh, the ultimate uh, bridegroom, mm-hmm. the ultimate bride, that being the Lord Jesus Christ and mm-hmm. the church. And uh, I've been uh, wonderfully, happily married now for over 40 years. Uh, I love being married. I love being a husband and a father. And uh, so Song of Solomon, uh, you find eight chapters dedicated to the theme of relationship and intimacy within the joys of marriage. And uh, as I said again, uh, there are themes that point us to Christ and his love for the church. And I just fell in love with the book. I've actually... Uh, written three commentaries in one form or another uh, on the Song of Songs. I've taught through it, oh my goodness, uh, more than a half a dozen times over the years. And uh, each time I work through it, uh, Nick, I fall more in love with it. And so uh, for whatever reason, it's been a book that's just had a very special place uh, in my life and also uh, in my heart as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, my wife and I attend a survey recovery at our church together, and uh-huh. I was talking to someone after a sharing session of sorts last Tuesday night, and somehow this kind of topic came up, and I said to him, you know, I remember seeing years ago someone, because you talk about how it this shows that imagery of Christ and my bride and such, I said, I remember <clears throat> seeing on Facebook years ago... <laughs> One of my friends posted a status about how, you know, the problem in our culture is people think about sex way too much. And I come and said, I'm sorry, you have this entirely wrong. That is not the problem in our culture. It's the exact opposite. People think about it way too little. They do it, they dream about it, they watch it, they talk about it, they fantasize about it, they do everything else in the world practically but think about it. I think that's on uh, spot on, Nick. I mm-hmm. think we do have a culture that is infatuated uh, with the idea of sex, uh, but they don't think of it in terms of uh, how God gave it to us mm-hmm. as a gift. Mm-hmm. They don't think of it in terms of God's uh, good guidelines for it. Uh, they don't think of it in terms of how God designed it uh, to draw two people close together in a way uh, that mere sex can never do, but sex within marriage can absolutely do. Mm -hmm. And so I agree. We don't talk about it. Well, we don't think about it enough. We talk about it, but we talk about it in such a superficial, surface kind of a way. And uh, tragically, we see what happens when a culture uh, is is awash in just mere sex, uh, as opposed to delving into the beauty and depths of it, within the biblical framework, and you discover, and, and, and it's amazing, even secular marriage and family therapists and researchers have pointed out that people that uh, are married uh, claim to have much more active sex lives, 
They also testify to having much uh, better and more fulfilling uh, sex lives. And so I often say playfully that if I were not even a Christian and you were to come to me and say, well, how can I have the maximum uh, benefit, blessings, and joys uh, of sex? I would say save yourself for marriage, get married, and be faithful in marriage. Mm-hmm. And you will increase the odds that you will have sex uh, more often, and you will also enjoy sex better. Mm-hmm. That's not what I just say. That's what even secular researchers say. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I also have this opinion that we, we're seeing what I call the marriage wars going on in our culture. And uh-huh. a lot of people in the church are getting upset because they say, look at how the world is treating marriage today. And I say, look, I, I hate to tell you this, but the sad thing is the church kind of did it first. That we, we allowed this to happen by not living marriage the way it should be. And I know the statistics on divorce, according to Shanti Feldhorn, are not as bad as they think, as they are often said to be, but right. they're still pretty bad. Yes, exactly. So I, I agree with you completely. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, I, I have the joy of speaking on marriage and family uh, quite a bit. And I uh, always remind uh, the audience when I begin, uh, we ought to go back to the one that wrote the marriage manual. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ought to go back to the one that created this good gift uh, called sex the one that gave us this good gift called marriage. Let's see what the creator of marriage and sex and intimacy has to say about it. And surprise, surprise, when we do it uh, his way, again, there's greater joy, there's greater blessing, there's more satisfaction, there's more fulfillment, there's more intimacy. Again, it's almost as if the one that came up with the idea knew what he was doing. And uh, indeed, he did know what he was doing when he gave us this good gift, but also said, uh, this is a very dangerous gift mm-hmm. and therefore has to be handled with care, has to be handled wisely. But if you will follow my guidelines for it, I made a promise to you in my word, you will find a joy and a blessing that will not be achieved any other way. And I know in my 40 years of being married, uh, I have found God to be absolutely true and, uh, and accurate in what he has said and promised in his word. Well, I can't compare to 40 years. My wife and I are separating eight years next month. And well, congratulations. So, it, it, it's kind of sad me that so many people are going out and say, wow, you've been married a long time, haven't you? Eight years well, wouldn't be a long time today. but Unfortunately, in our culture, it is a long time. Mm-hmm. 40 years, and people, their jaw hits the ground, and they're like, well, how in the world did that happen? And, uh, of course, the answer is uh, God's grace Mm-hmm. Uh, God's goodness uh, has sustained us for those 40 mm-hmm. years. And again, uh, to be very fair, uh, do we have our ups and downs? Of course we do. Yeah. Uh, do we have our good days and bad days? Of course we do. But you know, uh, Nick, in this culture in which we find ourselves yeah. today, uh, there's a, a C word that is often missing. Well, actually, there are two C words that are often missing. Uh, the first and most important is Christ. But the second one is commitment. And there is a lack of commitment. I'm not surprised that when the difficult times come, uh, people start bailing. Mm -hmm. Difficult times are going to come in every marriage. The issue is what do you do when those difficult times come? Mm -hmm. And if there's a resolve, a commitment that we are together uh, in this till death do we part, well, you have every motivation then to work through the difficult times and what we've discovered in our 40 years of being married 
is there are always blessings and good things on the other side of working through those difficult moments that come in everybody's marriage. I actually was thinking of another C word, covenant, which might be even stronger than commitment. I, I think you're right on that. I, I would absolutely agree with you. And I do like what you said about how it's being so powerful that it has to be used properly. I usually compare sex to nuclear energy. So if you use nuclear energy, you get beautiful resources. You use it properly. You can power a city, everything else in the world. If you use it wrongly, you get Chernobyl. That's a great analogy, and I think you're exactly right because I think sex is a powerful, powerful, powerful reality and a powerful gift used rightly. The benefits and the blessings are almost beyond words. Mm -hmm. uh, used improperly, and there is sorrow uh, and heartache and destruction at every turn. And again, as you mentioned earlier in our podcast, just look at the culture around us today and what we see are bodies strewn everywhere mm -hmm. that have been uh, the victims uh, and uh, have been those who have been totally destroyed and beaten up and bruised and battered. Uh, by the uh, sex-driven culture in which we find ourselves. Let's get to a few preliminary issues before we start really looking at the song of songs. And one was, my wife and I were just watching some, there was a commercial in the middle, and I noticed it, it said so calmly, like it's natural, that we said, when you start dating, you fall in love, you move in together, and, like that, and then, I mean, wait, wait, that's not how it goes. I mean, eventually it does, but usually we say move in together, before a marriage, I mean, my wife and I didn't move in together until after we said, I do, and such. But, you know, a lot of people look and say, you know, marriage is a real risk. Doesn't it make sense to, you know, try it out first? Well, again, uh, coming back to what you mentioned a moment ago, if we're going to test drive, let's use mm -hmm. that analogy. Yeah. There's no covenant. Yeah. Uh, and there's no commitment. And it's not surprising that uh, those that uh, cohabit, uh, the odds that they do not uh, stay together for life mm -hmm. is 10 times greater than those that do mm -hmm. enter into a covenant uh, called marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, furthermore, we know that spousal abuse, let's just take that one issue. Spousal abuse is twice as common on cohabitors as it is among the married. And so again, you're entering into not so much a let's give it a try and see what happens. Uh, let's test drive and see if we want to keep this car. Uh, actually, what you're doing is you're getting into an automobile that has no brakes and has poor steering. And uh, you're almost certainly going to have a wreck. And so the idea of entering into let's live together and see how it works uh, doesn't work. Now, we don't believe that you should not do that purely because of pragmatic reasons. Uh, we have deeply held biblical and theological reasons for believing one should reserve and save themselves for marriage. But again, in a culture that's driven by pragmatism, the pragmatic arguments are out there in abundance that would tell you this is not the wise way to go. This is not the smart way to go. And of course, what we can say is should not be surprised because God gave us the guidelines that he gave us for very good reasons. Not only that they reflect his character, but also because he knew what would be best for us. I also like to ask people, if they use a test drive analogy to say, okay, which one of you is the driver and which one of you is the car? <laughs> That's good. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, as the president of a seminary, another big issue that comes up in this kind of topic, and, and I hate to say it, but I'm sure there are several men and probably a few women at the seminary that are struggling with this, and that's pornography. Yes. It's everywhere on the Internet today. And I, I was reading some about just a couple of days ago how some people want to do a study on 20-year-olds who had seen pornography and 20-year-olds who hadn't seen it do differences. They couldn't find the 20-year-old men who had not seen pornography to do the study. <laughs> What's well, the danger of porn? Well, you're exactly right, Nick. We now, every year with an incoming class, <clears throat> we take a survey that basically it's anonymous because you want people to be uh, completely honest. Uh, we ask how many of you would say that you struggle and have issues in the area of pornography. Now, remember, this is a, uh, uh, a seminary where men and women are coming to be trained to be leaders in ministry. We have a Christian college where, again, men and women are coming because they sense a calling of the Lord uh, upon their lives for some type of future ministry. And among the males, uh, it's in excess of 80%. Now, you would say, well, your school is abnormal. No, our school is not. We keep up with other institutions, and those numbers are across the board among evangelical seminaries oh, and gosh. evangelical colleges. 80% of the males will honestly admit in an anonymous survey that they have difficulty in the area of pornography. Uh, that's so way too high. But here's what also amazes me. The numbers for females has been going up uh, consistently the last decade. So that 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, the number of females that would say they had some issue with pornography would have been minuscule, 10%, 15%, nothing more than that. Uh, today, it's over 50% and approaching 60%. Mm -hmm. So we're now having students come to our school. And as I say to churches, sometimes people will say, well, what's wrong with the students at your school? And I will remind them, no, these are incoming students that I am receiving from our churches. So these are people coming from your church, and I'm receiving them this way. And now I have a uh, a, a ominous responsibility to try to help them and get them moving in the right direction while they're here. What this demonstrates again is we live in a sex-saturated sex culture mm -hmm. that is so readily available, and young minds uh, and young people, uh, all that's going on in their world are simply not ready for this, and by the time they get to their latter teens and the 20s, uh, many of them are absolutely addicted. Mm -hmm. And so you ask, how are they going? Is this not going to impact their effectiveness in ministry? Well, of course it is. It's mm -hmm. going to impact their effectiveness in ministry. It's going to impact their effectiveness in marriage. It's going to have deleterious effects at every turn. And so mm -hmm. I don't think there's ever been a time in the history of the world uh, and we can even go back to ancient Rome and Greece with all of the pornographic things that were going on there. Never has it been so readily available uh, as it is today in our culture. And so we are facing a challenge that's unprecedented. And um, our work is really cut out for us in the days ahead because I think pornography 
uh, Nick, is more addictive than even heroin, mm-hmm. crack cocaine, or you pick your drug. Uh, there's something about sexual sin that deeply wounds the soul and makes it very, very, very difficult to eradicate. In fact, I think what we have to acknowledge is you're in some sense going to be uh, a porn addict uh, or a recovering porn addict for the rest of your life, and uh, you're going to have to fight by means of sanctification, the word and prayer and, and, and accountability and all the other things that the Bible and God's people make available to us, you're going to be fighting this uh, for the rest of your life. And just recognize you've got to roll up your spiritual sleeves and uh, get into that battle and be ready to go. Mm-hmm. We've had Robert Gagnon on here before. Yes. And something he said is that churches should be having sermons on sex at least once a month. I hardly ever hear anything from a church on topic, which really concerns because I can hear something from the world pretty much every single day. Mm-hmm. But from a church, I hear nothing. Well, we can't do that. And I think you're right. And I think that that is a, a, a dereliction of responsibility. The fact matter is uh, it is a sin uh, that is destroying uh, homes, marriages, uh, it is severely wounding the church, and therefore we cannot uh, play the ostrich uh, and stick our head in the sand. Uh, rather, we've got to confront this head on. We've got to be both prophetic. Uh, this is sin. Mm-hmm. This is wrong. This is uh, contrary to God's purposes and plans. But we also have to be pastoral. We, we can and will provide uh, a safe place for confession, a safe place for for repentance, a safe place for redemption and restoration. We have to be able to do that as well. So we wear the dual hats of prophet and pastor. I think what happens in some cases is either one, we don't wear either hat, or two, we wear one at the exclusion of the other. And we can't whitewash it and say it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. But at the same time, we need to speak prophetically to it and call pornography what pornography is, a mm-hmm. uh, sin against a holy and righteous God. You know, Sam, I, I try and explain to women, because you know, I, I did avoid porn in my life, but somehow I try to explain it to women, because it's still a batter for me, not pornography, but with temptation and such. Yeah. And say, look, here's the way it is for your man in his mind. This is why I think pornography can be so addictive, because we live out there in a world where there are Plenty of beautiful women, and they are trying to look beautiful many times, and there's no wrong in that, to a certain extent, of course. <clears throat> but I said, ladies, picture how it is if you're trying to lose those last 10 pounds, and you're going down the aisle of a grocery store, whichever aisle it is, it is that aisle. Maybe it's the ice cream aisle, the chocolate aisle, or the cookies aisle, or the potato chips aisle. But you have to go through that aisle of a grocery store, and you're trying to lose those 10 pounds, and it's driving you crazy. This is the world your man lives in every single day. We do live in a world where mm-hmm. the temptations have never been greater. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't turn on the television. Uh, you can't drive down the road. Yeah. Uh, you can't walk down an aisle in a supermarket. Uh, you can't even pick up your smartphone without those allurements being not only in your face, 
are just a click away. And again, it's one of the reasons, Nick, that I admonish very strongly parents. Uh, don't give your teenagers a smartphone. Let them have a, a cell phone, fine. But a smartphone where your teenage son uh, is a click away from a world of pornographic material, you do not want to do that because maturity-wise, they are not ready. For, heck, I don't know that 20, 30-year-olds are ready for it, but certainly a teenager is not ready for that type of responsibility. And if given the opportunity, we know the statistics, they're going to go down that road. And you are basically putting in their hand a mobile pornographic device. Why would you do that? You would not, uh, 30 years ago, have placed in your child's hand a copy of Playboy. Well, what you're putting in their hand now is far more dangerous than a Playboy magazine of 30 years ago. And so, again, the wisdom, and, and I know our children can be so um, resilient and uh, so demanding and uh, send us on guilt trips. You, you're, we're going to be the only teenagers uh, at our school that doesn't have a smartphone. Well, you know what? Maybe you will be. Uh, but the fact matter is I love you too much to put something like that before you at this particular point in time in your life and I'll, you know, as a parent, you know, a lot of parents say to me, well, if I make those hard uh, decisions and take those hard stands, uh, my kids, uh, I won't be their friend. Well, God didn't call you to be their friend. God called you to be their dad and their mom. Uh, you can be their friend later. But right now, you need to be that loving authority figure in their life that helps guide them and direct them in a wise and winsome way. And too many parents capitulate in this area to the great, great detriment of the children that they love so dearly. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone at this point you're listening to Deeper Wireless Podcast. we got Dr. Danny Aiken of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary with us talking about his book, God on Sex. But if you're here next week, we're going to have uh, John Stewart from Ratio Christie on with me. He's going to be talking about his book, In Defense of the Gospels. So we'll be looking at a defense of the Gospels from a legal perspective, actually, next week. Now, it, when we open up the Song of Songs, one of the first things you can notice immediately in the book is passion. It, I mean, it is right there, pretty much, one of the first things, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, right at the start and such. How important is passion? I think passion is very important, mm -hmm. and it is also very dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, again, rightly directed, uh, Nick, it is a really, really good, positive, and powerful thing. Uh, wrongly directed, and people murder, and people steal, mm -hmm. uh, and people commit adultery or fornication. So passion is a God-given gift that is uh, often connected to intimacy that is wonderfully expressed within the boundaries and the guidelines of marriage. And so one of the reasons I love the Song of Songs, you know, we, I think we misrepresent the Puritans, but if you use the phrase puritanical, they're just puritanical. Uh, that means uh, no fun, no joy, uh, no happiness, uh, there was even a time, I believe, among uh, evangelical Christians probably 40, 50 years ago where sex was viewed as something you did to procreate, mm -hmm. uh, not much more than that. Mm -hmm. Well, 
if you read the Song of Solomon, all eight chapters, there's something very, very interesting about that book. Children are nowhere in sight. Yep. They're never mentioned. Uh, they are not uh, part of the narrative. Uh, I playfully say the reason that is the case is that children don't contribute to our sex life and our intimacy life. They are the result of it. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact of the matter is when children start showing up, uh, it can make uh, sex and intimacy very difficult because of mm -hmm. the fatigue factor. Mm -hmm. You're so tired, you can hardly get out of bed, much less engage in intimacy uh, in the bed. You just want to sleep and rest. So I think one of the things we need to understand about uh, passion uh, is that it's a good thing. It's a God thing. And as you work your way through the eight chapters of the Song of Solomon, you're exactly right. There is passion on every page. There is passion in every chapter, and it is depicted rightly as a wonderful, good thing that is a wonderful, good gift from a great God. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about the purpose and how you said, not only for procreation and such, I many jumped in my mind to 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, you know, wives, your body belongs not just to you, but to your husbands, and husbands, your body belongs not just to you, but to your wives. And it's like, don't deny each other, don't withhold from one another, except, except, unless you both agree, mutual consent, and even then, only for a short time. You know, Paul says nothing about only come together when you want to have kids and such. In fact, it's pretty much saying don't avoid coming together. You need to come together. Paul is helping us understand exactly what you find in the Song of Solomon, that uh, passion is a natural human emotion. Uh, it is the way God made us. It is the way God wired us. And therefore, it is a good thing. Again, as we said earlier, it's the issue is, is it rightly directed? Uh, it is a good design, but is it rightly directed? Often uh, we talk in terms uh, theologically of how God has a good design. God has a good desire or direction, but the good design becomes perverted if it's directed wrongly. So again, Passion is a wonderful thing, and to be expressed fully, joyfully, creatively, but within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. And again, if you read the Song of Solomon, you see there's everything good and right and positive about that. And I think that what you alluded to a moment ago from 1 Corinthians 7 simply complements that. Uh, Paul recognizes we're not designed to suppress our uh, desires in marriage. We're designed by God to express our desires in marriage. Yes, we may set aside a time for fasting and prayer, but that is to be the exception, not the norm. The norm is that we would come together regularly serving one another, caring for one another. Uh, I often say this, Nick, if you want to have a good intimate life, Make sure Philippians 2, uh, 3 through 5, is at the very core of your marriage and of your commitment to one another. Uh, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with a humble mind, esteem the other better than yourself. Look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest 
of the other. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so what I often say when I talk to couples about intimacy, if your goal is to please your mate and your mate's goal is to please you, then both of you are going to be wonderfully, wonderfully satisfied. So the focus of your attention in the context of intimacy is not on yourself. It is on your mate. Your goal is to honor your mate, bless your mate, please your mate, bring joy to your mate. And in the process of approaching intimacy in that kind of a way, it is almost certain it will be reciprocal. And that same joy, that same happiness, and that same blessing will come back in your direction as well. I read a lot of marriage blogs and such now as I'm married and I interact with them. And a lot of women might think that men don't really care about passion and such. But we incredibly do. If there's something that I see constantly showing up on blogs and men talk about sex and marriage, they say what they want more than sex is they want to be wanted. They mm. want some passion. Men will take duty sex if they have to, because something beats nothing. But if if a woman wants to make a man really, very happy, the best thing she can do is really want him. That speaks volumes to him. Oh, I think you're exactly correct. Um, when I look at the Song of Solomon... Uh, one of the things I see as an undercurring theme, an undercurrent, if you like, uh, Nick, is the man's uh, need uh, for admiration mm. uh, and respect. And one of the things that uh, is connected to that in the Song of Solomon is intimacy. And when a man, I think you're exactly right, a man can, can have sex and he'll take it, but it does not have nearly the power and nearly the meaning uh, that it does when he senses that his wife wants him, mm -hmm. uh, that his wife desires him. There's something about knowing that that elevates this wonderful act to a level for a man yeah. that cannot be achieved in any other way. And yeah. so uh, I think you're exactly right. And when a woman expresses her desire uh, for intimacy with her husband— his uh, sense of self-worth and value doesn't go down. Oh, my goodness gracious. Oh, yeah. It always goes up. Uh -huh. So I think you're exactly right. Uh, men, especially, and, and I can say this from experience, the longer you're married, and I'm now into my starting my fifth uh, decade, the longer you're married, the more that matters to you. Mm -hmm. The more that matters to you. Because when we're younger, yeah, we've got uh, hormones raging, We've got passion that will kick off at the drop of a hat. But the older we get, uh, your body changes. Things go through uh, uh, different uh, stages of life. There's still passion and, and all of that there, but it's different. It's different. And to know that this woman that you have given your life to still finds you attractive as you find her attractive, still yeah wants you and desires you, I think you've, you've hit on a very, very, very important truth that amazingly sometimes I think isn't known very well by married couples. Now, I'd like to also remind everyone at this point that uh, 
Everything we do here at the Deeper Waters podcast is supported by you. We really don't have income coming in that can help us beyond what you all give. And I would really encourage you to give because giving is so, so down for us so much of the time. So if you want to give, go to deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link on the side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And there's a place in there you can click a link so you can go donate. But wait, that link takes you to Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yeah, you actually have. Because Risen Jesus is a ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you go and you make your donation there. And you get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or Allie. And say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. You got to make sure we get your donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy some ebooks I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or co written, such as Defining Inanity, God and Natural Disasters, Groundless, Christian Answers, Risk Generations Question. And also, we've got another way you can give here. Now, we're talking a lot about marriage today. Some of you guys might not have been keyed into this fact as well. <laughs> That's that uh, women like jewelry. Yeah, I, I know it's it, it could be shocking news to you, but they do. And we have a jewelry store, actually. Someone who sells jewelry, and they work with us. <laughs> and if you purchase something from them, 25% of whatever you purchase goes to deeper waters. Now, guys, you know my rule on this, but I always tell you. You can use this and buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that big screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that big screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. <laughs> and if you can't do any reads, please go on iTunes and leave us a positive review. I love to see them. Tell your friends about the Deeper Waters podcast. Get the word out there. Uh, Dr. Aiken, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, I have the honor of being president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Mm -hmm. I think one of the finest seminaries in the world. Uh, we are a great commission seminary, Nick. Uh, we say around here uh, like a mantra, uh, every classroom, a great commission classroom, every professor, a great commission professor, every student, a great commission student that we pray become great commission graduates who will go out and be a part of and build a great commission churches. So we have real heart for the nations, getting the gospel uh, to the underreached and unserved parts of the world and in North America. So if you believe in missions, you believe in expository preaching, you believe in biblical counseling, uh, Southeast would be a great school to uh, support. Uh, my wife and I not serve here. We support the school as well, and uh, I cannot think of a better institution uh, that would pay a more rich dividend than a school like Southeastern. So I certainly would encourage people to look us up and uh, to consider supporting us. Uh, I can promise them their money will be put to good use. Can you remind us for website again? Uh, uh, S-E-B-T-S, the acronym for Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, mm -hmm. uh, S-E-B-T-S dot E-D-U. Mm -hmm. And if you go there, or if you just Google Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, our website's the first thing that comes up. 
and they can go from there, see about the school, look at the different degree programs that we offer. Uh, we, this past year, for the first time in our history, went past 4,000 students. Uh, we are the uh, uh, third or fourth largest seminary in the world. We are the largest seminary uh, on the East Coast. And not only do we offer a residential program, which is a wonderful program here in Wake Forest, we have six uh, fully online degrees. Uh, we have a fully online BA degree. So if you're living somewhere and your job or your ministry uh, has it uh, where you can't pick up and move, you can still uh, take classes with us and work towards earning a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, both on the MA level uh, and the MDiv level. And so we're glad to serve you wherever you are. Fact matter is, Nick, uh, and I'm so thankful for this, we have several hundred students that don't even live in America. Mm. Uh, around the world, many of them are on the field as missionaries taking classes with us to better hone their skills for where they're serving. And so, again, technology can be used badly, but technology can also be used in a wonderfully positive way as well and we're able now to export uh, biblical and theological education that even 15 years ago was absolutely impossible. And I am very, very grateful for that opportunity, and we're trying to take advantage of it. Yeah, we just got done talking about some songs about how women need to pursue their husbands with passion and such, how much it would mean to them. So let's say something to the men, to be fair here, and such. There are too many men who uh, come in from work, don't say a thing to their wives, Harvey. Pick up the remote, turn on the TV, watch it, ask their wives to bring them dinner, and somehow get surprised when their wife isn't feeling particularly romantic that evening. <laughs> yeah. You have painted a very uh, common and unfortunate scenario, my yeah. friend. Yeah. Could it be that maybe just as men want to be pursued, went that they should, you know, maybe take part in helping their wife out around the house and with things like that, too, instead of just treating her like a servant and just having her being romantic only when they want something? Well, I often say playfully, to make your point, uh, a happy girl outside the bedroom usually results in a happy guy inside the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying is this, Romance uh, is not so much an act. Romance is an environment. Yep. And it's an environment that we create. And I would argue that the primary responsibility for creating an uh, environment of romance falls on the shoulders of the man. Mm -hmm. He creates an environment of affection, of kindness, of acceptance, of service, of value, of worth. And in that context of romance, the act of intimacy takes place more often and with greater passion and intensity. So I think you're exactly right. Um, I often say it this way. Men are creatures of sight. Uh, they're moved by what they see. Women are more creatures of the ear and of the heart. They're moved by what they feel. And a woman feels romantic when she feels valued and when she feels that she is, uh, uh, has worth. And how do you do that? Mm -hmm. Well, what you just said a moment ago, you pick up your clothes, uh, you help wash the dishes, you take out the trash, you change that dirty diaper, uh, you do the things that you think, well, that's her responsibility. Well, I can't find in the Bible 
that vacuuming the floor is the wife's responsibility. Basically, I think it's probably both of our responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And how we flesh that out will vary from marriage to marriage. But when, again, a woman feels like she's in a true, authentic partnership, uh, and when a woman feels that not only does her husband value her as his lover, but he also values her as his friend, then when that takes place, it's amazing how things sort of heat up uh, in the bedroom. Yeah. And so I think, again, you're exactly right. And too many men uh, expect uh, something at the end of the day when they have contributed to nothing throughout the day. Yeah. And not surprised that they may be disappointed at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I got married right before I turned 30. And I'm a nerd, so I never take it for granted because I think, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'll never get married now. I say, oh, wow, I, I just can't believe that you actually want to be with me. I mean, it, it blows my mind. My wife has any desire for me whatsoever. But I still do the things of opening up the car door for her and such. Never forget an anniversary. Never forget a birthday. <clears throat> and... I'm on Facebook every day except Sunday, and every day I post a marriage meme and a love message to her. And if anyone dares hurt her on there, God have mercy on them because I'm sure not going to, and everyone knows it. I like that, Nick. I like that a lot. I think no wonder that speaks to her heart. I think that would speak to the heart of any woman. Now, let's uh, move on to the book here. Because obviously, we can't cover everything. We've got a few minutes left. But I think this also hits another issue that differentiates between men and women so much. When we get to the fourth chapter of Song of Songs, things start getting really, really explicit in that chapter and such. I mean, I could look and I could say, I mean, I wouldn't use the same terminology because it's not exactly romantic today. I mean, I, I would say, Oh, Allie, baby, your your teeth are like a flock of sheep there. She's not going to feel the love if I say that and such. But I could say so many similar things in such day. But those are very physical and, like we said, very explicit. I'm obviously a pervert, aren't I? No, not at all. What what you have going on there, of course, first of all, is fitting uh, in a rustic rural uh, culture. Uh, back during the days of Solomon. Uh, what we do when we explain chapter 4, which, by the way, in my opinion, is their wedding night. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's a general progression throughout the book. I wouldn't make it hard and fast. Poetry doesn't work that way. Love songs don't work that way. But you have kind of the courting period uh, in the first two chapters. You actually have their wedding ceremony in chapter 3, verses 6 to 11, and then you have the wedding night, uh, very, as you mentioned a moment ago, very sensually. Uh, we could even use the word erotic, but I would also say very tastefully uh, depicted in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 1. What we have today is take what those images meant in that day and translate them in terms of what they would be today. So that when he speaks of her teeth in that kind of way, he's just simply saying, you have a beautiful mouth, a beautiful smile, uh, your teeth sparkle and shine, your lips are ruby red, and they drip with honey. Uh, I can hardly resist uh, the urge and desire 
to kiss you. He then begins to describe her body mm-hmm. and in essence says, uh, I want to uh, take uh, all of you mm-hmm. and enjoy all of you. And one of the things I think is really neat about the uh, fourth chapter is this, Nick, unusual in the Song of Solomon. The man does almost all the speaking in chapter four. Most mm-hmm. of the chapters, the woman is the predominant uh, speaker. Mm-hmm. In chapter four, he speaks all the way until the very end of the chapter when she, after hearing him, praise her. Oh, my goodness gracious. Mm-hmm. The praise that he lavishes on her for almost 15 verses is unprecedented in the Bible. And at the end of all of that, she says, in essence, I'm yours. Come and take me. Mm-hmm. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, I think there's a bad chapter division there. It really goes with chapter 4. You have the aftermath. Uh, of their uh, consummation of their marriage. Mm -hmm. And he and she are rejoicing and resting and uh, thanking God for what they've just experienced. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I think there's a really valuable lesson there for men about the importance, kind of coming to what you said a moment ago, creating this environment of romance. Mm -hmm. Well, how did he do it? Well, remember, a woman is a creature of the ear and of the heart, and so if that's true, and I think Solomon thought it was, he spends 15 verses getting her ready for consummation in marriage by praising her, honoring her, lifting her up, telling her how valuable she is to him. And if you read those verses, it's not just in terms of sex or sensuality. He, he uses some weird phrases in there. He calls her his sister. Yeah. Now, you would say, well, that, that's about the most unromantic thing I could ever think of. Well, in that culture, that's really a way of talking about intimacy in terms of friendship and filial relationships. So in other words, he is saying to her, I want you to be my lover, but I also recognize already that you're my friend. And again, I've learned in 40 years of marriage that friendship and lovemaking almost always go together. And in fact, they do go together when intimacy is everything God intended and designed for it to be. They're not mutually exclusive. They actually go together in a wonderful partnership. I've got, as we sit here, I've got on my computer desk and on my bookshelves, I've got a picture, different one of my wife here. When I open up my phone, when I look at my desktop screensaver, when I look at my Kindle background, I've got a picture there. And each one of those times, it's actually the same picture. It's a picture of my wife, of her as the beauty queen winner at the Miss Shining Star Beauty Pageant in Knoxville, beauty pageant for women with disabilities and such, put on by Johnny and friends. I've got a picture right there of hers, and I regularly tell her, I say, honey, you are the most beautiful sight I ever see, and I I have never stopped being amazed by her body. Such as just, I'm like, wow, God certainly knew what he was doing when he made woman. And as to, I, mean, I love to think that you are exclusively mine, I'm exclusively yours, and I share with you something that I share with no one else. And such, and I think it's kind of important to say this because Christians aren't meant to be Gnostics. The body isn't an add-on, as it were, and there's nothing wrong with 
a man admiring and loving his wife's body and vice versa for a wife to do the same with her husband's. Our bodies were made to be beautiful and desired by the other. I think you're exactly right. In fact, for us not to love their bodies is to be guilty of an ancient uh, philosophical heresy called Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. No, we we love her spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, We love her soul, but we love her body. Mm-hmm. Because you recognize the body is a good thing made and designed by a good God. It is part, I think, at least in functional categories, of what it means to be made in the image of God. And therefore, we also were reminded that in, in redemption, God is going to redeem and glorify the body. So there's nothing bad about the body uh, other than what the ravages of sin have inflicted upon it. Uh, the body is something that is going to be glorified uh, for all of eternity, and it is something to be wonderfully cherished and honored as a great gift right now. So I think you're exactly right. And again, one of the things I want to encourage your listening audience to, uh, the older we get, uh, the more I think we should and can grow an appreciation of the body of our mate. I often say today, truthfully, and playfully, but truthfully, uh, I think the best thing going in terms of a body uh, is a is 59-year-old brown-eyed brunettes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my wife is brown-eyed brunette and 59. And if you told me, uh, Nick, when I was 21 years old, that I would think a 59-year-old lady was the most beautiful woman in the world, I would have said, uh, that's not in the realm of possibility. Well, I would have been the one who was wrong because today that's exactly what I think. And again, I... Uh, I'm wonderfully surprised by that, wonderfully grateful for that. Just stand amazed again at how God allows us to find a depth uh, and a width in our intimacy the longer we're married that we could never, ever imagine when we first got started. Mm -hmm. And so it's this good at 40. I can't wait to see what it's like if God lets us stay married 60, 70, 80 years. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I agree, Matt. My wife was beautiful on our wedding day and her wedding gown and everything else. Such we, st- we got those pictures around here too. But somehow I I look today, eight years later, and I think, baby, as far as I'm concerned, you've got more beautiful over the years and such. And it's it's not just a physical thing. It's just I've come to know her better, and knowing her makes her even bear me that. She is my standard of feminine beauty right now. Amen. And that's the way it should be for every husband. His wife should be. That's the right way of saying it, Nick. Your wife should be your standard of beauty. Mm -hmm. And that's the person whereby you measure all others. And, of course, if that's true, nobody else will measure up. Yep. Well, we don't really have time to get into another question. And there's so much more. People, we, we can't really look have a whole book here in time and such. But I'm looking right now, the Amazon price of the book God on Sex. The paperback is eleven fifty four. The Kinder is seven ninety nine. That's God on Sex, the Creator's ideas about love, intimacy, and marriage. Doctor Aiken, do you have a uh, email, a website, a blog, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you? I do. Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Danny Aiken. Uh, I do have a blog, uh, uh, danielaiken.com. If you Google uh, my name, 
uh, Danny Aiken or Daniel Aiken, it comes up first. Uh, what's there, Nick, is a large uh, wealth uh, of free material. Uh, all of the sermons I have taught and preached over the last 20 years are there. So you can find both the audio uh, and the manuscripts of studies through uh, Ruth, the Song of Solomon, the Psalms, uh, Jonah, Daniel, Revelation, Jude, the Epistles of John, Titus. Uh, I can go on and on. And so all of that is there. It's absolutely free. And I'm happy for people to take advantage of that material any way they want to. So Daniel Aiken. Uh, dot com. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's A-K-I-N for people listening out there. If you want to make sure that's you're right. right. <laughs> now, that's uh, right. Do you have any final words or thoughts you'd like to leave for the Waters audience? Well, one, I want to say thank you for the privilege of being a part of this today. I really have enjoyed the conversation. Mm-hmm. And let me just say this. I do believe marriage is a good gift from a great God. And when we do marriage God's way under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, where he is the Lord of the life of the husband and Lord of the life of the wife, as we get closer to him, we naturally get closer to one another. And the fact that there is in Christ, uh, in a fallen, broken world, we can find happiness and joy and blessings that we would never experience any other way in any other avenue and for that, I praise his name and certainly want to encourage others to pursue God's way. Don't be surprised when you find that it far exceeds what you expected you were going to enjoy. Now, Dr. Aiken, I'd like to thank you for taking your time to come on here. And I do hope we'll see you back here again sometime. I'd be honored, Nick. I can remind everyone that next week, we're going to have John Stewart on talking about his book, In Defense of the Gospels. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>